If you've been uh, worshiping with us this fall, you know that we have been uh, working our way through the Old Testament book of Numbers. Uh, during uh, uh, the month of Advent, we're going to take a break from that. We're not going to do um, Numbers. We'll come back to that uh, in January. Um, and so what I wanted to do uh, these four weeks is look a little bit at uh, Jesus and uh, uh, kind of make sense of all this stuff we do this time of year. I discovered something this week that during the month of December, the at night, the uh, cable network that has the largest audience is, well, actually two networks, the Hallmark Networks. Did you know that? And I actually read an essay about that this week um, because I find that sh- just stunning. Uh, the, not the least of which is because, you know, they just show one movie after another, the Hallmark movies, and they're, it's the same movie <laughs> over and over and over again. Same movie, over and over again. Very sentimental. But what I find so fascinating about that is that our culture, which is coarse, angry, bitter, divisive, and divided, for this month, spends its time and energy looking at art that's not so great, but makes people feel warm. And so what I want us to do, these four weeks of Advent, is deal with that issue, because what I am afraid for many of us is that we confuse the gospel with sentiment. Now, there's nothing wrong with sentiment. Or sentimentalism. I'm certain at some point over the next month, I'll watch one of those movies. I will decorate the house. I will eat the special foods that we eat. And we will hang the ornaments that our kids made in preschool. And it'll be fun and heartwarming. But it's not the gospel. It's not. And in fact, uh, it would be a mistake for us to confuse uh, the coming of Jesus with simply making us feel warm, a little less lonely, a little less put upon, a little less afraid. Because what we have in the coming of Christ is something much more profound and much bigger than that. Because the advent of Jesus Christ changes everything. In fact, changes the direction, the arc, the movement of the whole universe. And so as we look at it this morning, what I want us to do is read uh, from Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6, which is our uh, first text that we're going to read for uh, Advent this year. The text is printed in the bulletin and also Uh, up on the screens behind me. 
Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6. This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And so as we look at this text today, you know, we as we enter into this chapter in the middle of it, you have to see a bit about uh, the context. One of the things that the Bible tells us over and over and over again is that people get the leaders they deserve. One of the things that is important for us in our day and age and one of the projects that we are about as a culture is trying to find out, trying to figure out and, and, and really arrive at who are our heroes? Who are the people uh, who have gone before us uh, that we should emulate, that we should be like, that we should venerate? And it is a confusing and difficult and divisive uh, uh, thing for us. And so the text that we're reading today, the context of that uh, deals very directly with this. Uh, what happens here is in the context of the passage that we've read is that the people of God are about to be besieged and about to be carried off, uh, taken away. God had warned them for millennia, literally centuries, that that if they were faithless, that if they turned away from him, if they pursued idols and other things that would, would be the center of their lives, that ultimately the result of that would be poor leadership and the re- result of that would be the fact that they would be dispersed, carried away, uh, that as a people, in many ways, they would be destroyed. And so Jeremiah uh, bursts upon the scene in a city and in a nation that is on the verge of being done away with. Uh, The Babylonians are about to come and sack the city of Jerusalem and carry them away. And in this situation, in this context, Jeremiah addresses the people and he addresses more specifically their leaders. He says this, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds, who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Do you get that play on words? I, you haven't attended, but I will attend to you. As a dad, I spoke to my children like that often. And when they heard me say, I will attend to you, um, it got their attention. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to the fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they will fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, 
declares the Lord. And so it is in this context that God says, in fact, not only will I bring you back after you've been scattered, not only will I appoint shepherds over you, even more than that, I will give you the shepherd, the leader, the righteous one who will execute justice and mercy on my behalf, who will lead you and care for you and shepherd you and attend to you uh, in the ways that you need, right? So the people of God have sinned and part of the consequences of their sin is bad leaders who only compound their sin. And so in the midst of this situation, they're stuck. They are, they are broken. Uh, they are confused. They are divided and they have no idea what to do or any idea what it is that is about to happen to them and barely any idea who this God is who is speaking to them. And so in the midst of this, God makes this promise and he makes the promise that the very thing that has crippled you, poor leadership, as a result of your own sin and your own faithlessness, I will address by bringing to you the leader that you've longed for. So let's let's just look at the text. These words, behold, the days are coming, are rich words, aren't they? Particularly to people who are in trouble, people who are uh, fearful, people who are divided and bitter and angry and unsure what is going to happen next. God comes to them and speaks through his prophet Jeremiah and says, listen, look up, pay attention. The days are coming. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, uh, these words, behold, the days are coming, is repeated 16 times. That what God wants the people to know is that though they have been faithless, he will be faithful. Though they have been idol worshipers, he will be their God. And he will bring to fruition the promise that he has made to them. Not only will he restore them to Jerusalem, but he will destroy the whole of creation. He will restore all that is broken uh, in and outside of his people. And, you know, honestly, this is probably the best and the hardest thing about Advent to hear and to sit in the darkness that is often ours and hear God declare to us that the days are coming. Just you look, just you wait, just beyond the horizon. I am about to do something tremendous. I am about to change everything. I am about to bring to fulfillment all of those promises that I have made. And for many of us, those are the best words, the best thing, the the most wonderful thing that we can experience during Advent. And for many of us, it's the hardest. Because we live and we long and we yearn. We have these deep yearnings, deep longings. And they express themselves in all sorts of ways for for relationships, for for uh, fulfillment, for security, for safety, for all of those things. Yeah, for children, oh, you name it, it's there. And so we long for those things to come. And so when we hear that God is going to more than fulfill our unfulfilled desires, and this hope that we have, that is this great thing, makes us vulnerable. It puts us in a place where we place our hopes and we long and we wait and we wonder. And so to hear God come to his people and say, behold, the days are coming. Look up. Look, this is this is going to happen to you is the most wonderful thing. It gives us the hope and the hope that we have is is not maybe that things will work out or that they'll get better. But the hope that we have is certain and sure because our God is certain and sure. And yet we wait 
we wait. So what he says is is that the days are coming where he will establish for them a a righteous branch uh, out of uh, for David. Now, now, one of the things that you have to understand about the people of God, they're not so different from us. They these people who are hearing this uh, remember the good old days. They look back. And the good old days were when David was king. They look back now, you know, we obviously know that uh, that David uh, was a great warrior and uh, established the borders of the of the kingdom and established his his uh, capital in Jerusalem. We also know that he was a failure morally, spiritually in many ways, even though he repented. But the truth is the sword as a result of his sin never departed from his house until the day he died. But he's remembered as the greatest of their kings. And that, in fact, all kings that came after him are judged in a real sense uh, by, by who David was. And so everyone is longing, looking for, expecting this coming one, this Messiah, this one who will bring about this wonderful reign, uh, would be in the line of and like David. And we read this description of him that here the ESV translates as a branch. Really, it's a shoot. And it is a shoot out of something that is dead. It is as if you were to walk out of here, go into the woods, and you were to see a stump where a tree had been cut off and suddenly new life is coming out of it. A place that I've spent a lot of time over the last few weeks. I've walked around where the, the trees have been cut up, cut down. A couple of years ago, they timbered this property. And one of the things that I've noticed is that all of the oak stumps have shoots coming out of them. That if you would look to look at that stump, it would be dead. It would appear dead. It would just appear like a, a stick that's sticking up out of the, the ground. That there's no life in it. There's, there's no hope in it. And yet, wait, look, there's a, there's a, there's a shoot coming out of that. For all, it looks as if the line of David is dead. It looks as if the people of God is dead. It looks as if they, they have come to a dead end. It is as if they have been sawed off close to the ground with no hope of life. And yet God in his great mercy brings from that death new life. It is the hope of the people of God that our God not only brings life from death, but our God raises the dead. And so in light of that, we have every reason to hope, every reason to hear these words that behold, the days are coming, that we hook our faith into those promises and we look for God to fulfill and to do the things that he has said he will do. And he says that this one will come up out of, out of, out of the shoot. The shoot will come out of David. And we read about what his leadership will, will be like. It says he shall reign and deal wisely and execute justice. Listen, every single human being who is under authority longs for leaders who will reign and deal wisely and execute justice. That's what we want. Whether whether it's a boss or a police officer or a governor or a president or a judge. Wherever we are, whether it's a parent, a grandparent, that what we long for in those people is that, that they would lead and shepherd and guide us uh, in this way. And so the hearts of the people of God are longing for that, just like we do. Longing for justice and wisdom and, and to see the, 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 the right effect of this uh, in, uh, uh, in, in our world. 
That's what we all want from those in authority. And God says that he will bring that to us in the flesh. And he says that that we will have salvation and security. Those things that we need, the fact that we need to be delivered. But not only do we need to be delivered, we need to be delivered once and for all so that our destiny is secure. We make a mistake in the way in which we look at the Old Testament. Many of you parents... Many of you Sunday school teachers, maybe, teach the Old Testament as a series of moral examples. And maybe that helps you get your kids in line, right? You don't want to be like that little boy, look what happened to him. Or be like this little boy, he was great. Well, they all failed. They're all bad, all bad. All bad. They're all sinners. They're all broken. One of my favorite uh, books in the Old Testament, a book I've been fascinated with since I was a child, is the book of Judges. In fact, you know, the, the book of Judges should come with, you know, not for children below the age of wherever, because... There is some crazy stuff in the book of Judges, really crazy, really scary. That's why it's so interesting, right? Well, what you read in the book of Judges is, is that God settles his people in the land and they become faithless because they become prosperous. And they turn their back and they forget who delivered them. And what happens is, God in his mercy raises up oppressors who come and oppress them and oppress them and oppress them until they repent. And when they repent, they cry out for deliverance and God delivers them by means of raising up deliverers. And these deliverers come and they are good and righteous judges for the most part, at least to start with. And they lead the people, and the people have prosperity for 60, 70, 80 years, and then they die. And then the cycle repeats itself. Now, what happens is the cycle not only repeats itself, it gets worse. So each succeeding oppression is worse than the one before. But weirdly enough, each judge is worse than the one before, so that at the end of the book, The best judge is Samson, who's just appetite on legs with muscles. (laughs) That's all he is. And his greatest act of deliverance comes by killing his enemies and killing himself. The best of the judges failed. And the reason why they failed is because they might be able to get the Midianites out of the country, but they can't get the sin out of their hearts. They can't fix what's broken. And what's broken is not a budget priority. And what's broken is not a defense policy. And what's broken is not that. What's broken is not out there. It's in here. 
And that, my friends, is what no human leader can address. So even if a leader is raised up who, who leads righteously and leads well and, and challenges the people to, to live up to um, uh, the thing that, that, that God calls them to, in the end, in the end, that leader, that king, cannot change what's really broken. And so this king that comes not only rules righteously, Praise God. He is the righteousness of his people. He changes everything. His name is the Lord is our righteousness. Now, you and I tend to think that righteousness is right living. We tend to think it's doing the right thing. Right, and certainly there is value in that, and there is uh, that 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 uh, matters. But I am here to declare to you today that your righteousness, those things that you do, those things that you avoid doing, are not enough. One of the themes that really bugs me at Christmas is. I have this lame little gift, and I give it to Jesus, and he receives it because he feels bad because all I have is a lame little gift. You should pray for my wife during this time of year because this just irritates me to no end. Listen, Jesus receives your gift. Not because it's small or it's lame, but because he makes your gift suitable and righteous. You see, the way we tend to think about our lives is that um, somehow or other, if I do enough good things, they will outweigh the bad things. There's a problem with that. And the problem is not with the bad things. The problem is with The good things. That's the problem. Because the good things don't, aren't really the good things. You see, one of the things that I think is so true of us, and one of the things that we need to be brutally honest with ourselves about is that many of the good things we do, we do them because we're afraid of negative consequences if we don't. And that seems good. And listen, hey, let me just be on record here. All of us, all of you, do better, okay? Straighten up, fly right, do better, okay? The problem is straightening up and doing better on your best day is not only not enough, it's rejected. We're in the stage of life where we're getting rid of stuff. And so... Uh, Yesterday, I was tasked with taking two benches and two rugs to Goodwill. Now, for many of you, I know that the stuff you take to Goodwill is stuff that you don't really like. Well, you have to understand, all of these things were actually pieces of furniture and rugs in our house that we were using and living with as a part of our house, as a part of our life, as a part of our decorating 
up until a few weeks ago. We thought they were great. Marty told me to take them to Goodwill. I pull up to the Goodwill door. I get out. I start pulling the rug out, and I go inside, and I set it down because it's really heavy, the first rug, giant Indian Dury. I go back to get the braided rug, a braided rug. And the man who's there is trying to stop me. I'm thinking, well, his English is just poor. I don't know what he's saying, but these are great rugs. And he finally gets my attention and says, we don't want your rugs. They're not good enough. And he starts, I'm like, what? And so he goes and picks the rug up and puts it back in my truck. Aren't you? Uh, stunning. We'll take those benches, but you can keep your rugs. I like these rugs. I thought these rugs were really cool. I thought they were really beautiful. They were rejected. So you know when the Goodwill man is rejecting your stuff. Just imagine the spiritual moment you have when you drive away from the Goodwill thinking about that. And you're thinking, wow, I must have really scared that guy because he apologized so much. And I didn't say a word to him. And I didn't. I must have looked at him. (laughs) Right? You see, mere sentiment tells us that we intended to do good. Or we did good when we could have done bad. And that God grades on a curve and it'll be okay. But the gospel tells us, Advent tells us, a story so much worse and yet so much better than that. And it's this, the Lord is your righteousness. You are not your righteousness. You do not achieve your righteousness. He does that for you. Jesus Christ lived a righteous life that in his love and mercy, he gives to you so that you can say, the Lord is your righteousness. And so this sets us free from having to make our own righteousness and praise God for making everybody else righteous. That what we have to say and what we have to proclaim is that the Lord has done this for us. And that is what makes all the difference. Jesus earned for you all the righteous standing before God you will ever need. And so in humility and in freedom, you now are set free from that. The great news about this king who comes is not just that he rules righteously, but that he establishes righteousness in the hearts and minds and lives of his people by being their righteousness for them. That's the good news. That's the freedom that Jesus died, lived, died, and rose again to give to us.
hear these words of institution as we come 